Hello, and welcome to A Year with Jesus, where we're learning to think, live, and love like Jesus. I'm Philip. I'm Bill. And this week, we have a special guest with us, Dave Hamlet, one of our shepherds from the Embry Hills Church of Christ. Good morning, guys. Great to be with you. Glad you're here, man. Okay, this week we're in Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 7, and we're seeing Jesus' identity become even more clear through the things that he says and the things that he does. Yeah, so at the end of chapter 5, remember, he heals a girl from the dead. I mean, in chapter 5, you have these three huge miracles. He leaves there, and he comes to his hometown. And it says the disciples are with him. You just imagine, he's going to do something absolutely incredible now that he gets home, that he's at his hometown, he's with his people. And instead of any sort of belief, what there is is incredulity here. Yeah, there's doubt, there's um, confusion, and there's not very many miracles here. Dave, what do you really love about the beginning of chapter 6? Well, the question in verse 2 is really part of a series of questions going back to the beginning of the book where folks have struggled with Jesus' identity. He's not what they expect. And here the hometown is like, we've known this guy. From the from the beginning, he's the he's the carpenter, right? We know his brothers and sisters, um, and that familiarity is 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 challenging them. That they are limiting him based on what they think they already know about him. Yeah, those assumptions are really getting in the way of their faith growing and their faith developing here. Well, Bill, it's not just a little bit of rejection here in the beginning of the chapter. There are several other stories that seem to highlight rejection. Yeah, so the, in chapter 6, at least through through about verse 29, it seems like it breaks up these three stories that I think the the middle story might actually be kind of the crux of it all. But you have this first story where Jesus is rejected at his hometown. Then the, it, Mark goes back and he tells you about the death of John the Baptist, where John was rejected for preaching the truth and sandwiched between those kind of in a chiastic structure— is Jesus commissioning the 12, and he's telling them, you need to go out, and you need to preach, and don't take anything with you, by the way, and if someone rejects you, dust you know, dust your feet and keep going. And I just imagine for the disciples what it would have been to have heard, okay, the, the forerunner of Jesus Christ was rejected, was killed. Eventually, Jesus himself will be rejected and killed. What expectations they would have had as they went out to go and preach the word, which I think would have been sobering for them. That's really great because we want to understand that as good as this news is and as powerful as the message of Christ is, that doesn't mean everyone is going to accept it. And we see that in Nazareth and we see that in the 12 going out with these pairs. I think the pairs is another important thing here that they're not just relying on each other. They're not just relying on the wealth they would take with them. They are relying on God as they go out. And it's going to be God who is able to open these hearts to the gospel, but not everybody is willing to repent based on the preaching of the 12. So Mark goes back and he tells the story of King Herod putting John the Baptist to death. Dave, what do you see in that story? Oh, a lot. But, uh, you you know, he's struggling with Jesus's identity as well. There's questions about who is this Jesus. Herod thinks it must be John who he put to death. And uh, I think what you see here in, in, in this story is an example of someone who is not willing to repent all along the way. He's got the opportunity to to make right wrongs that he had done, and he's not responded. You know, and there's a strength that's associated with that repentance, right? I think a lot of people would look at Herod in this kind of an event and say, well, he's got the authority of Rome behind him. He's the one in charge, but I don't think you would say he's the one really strong here. I don't think you would say that he has the great strength. Well, and that's because John was on God's side. Very good. So where do we see that real strength in John? Uh, we see him uh, continuing to speak uh, when, when something needs to be called out as sin. He does that. 
when somebody puts him into prison, he's willing to keep talking to them yeah. because that person's willing to at least listen. It says that that Herod considered him a, a godly man in, mm-hmm. in some way, was willing to hear him out. To the very end of his life, he served the Lord. What a tremendous strength. What I think on the flip side, you see what happens when someone is unwilling to repent. So the, the apostles were supposed to go and preach that people should repent. And you, you mentioned Herod not having power. It seems like not even in his own household he had power. It's, this is Herodias, who's really the, the, the woman that he's with that he has no right to be with. But John is preaching that he has that she has no right to be with, uh, with, with Herod. And so it says that she holds a grudge against him, and she wants to kill him. She can't for a moment, but then she looks for an opportune time to do so, which is, again, I even think a shadow of eventually what the the, the Pharisees and the, high, and, the, and the chief priests will do with Jesus himself. Well, they're... They want to put him to death. They won't out of fear of the people, but then eventually they'll find an opportunity to do so. Uh, but then I actually think as the text continues, you actually have this, this kind of juxtaposition between these two banquets. And so you have the banquet that Herod holds, and he has the noblemen and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, and they're eating this feast. And what the big thing at this feast is the death of a very righteous man. And in the next story, Philip, there's Jesus is gathered with at least 5,000 men we know, and they're going to eat a feast. They're going to eat a meal. But what's different between this feast and the feast we just saw? Right. The feast we saw just really has highlighted all the weaknesses of Herod. The weaknesses brought on by his pride. The weaknesses brought on by his lust. The weaknesses brought on by his unrighteousness. And yet, when Jesus has 5,000 plus people gathered around him, we see his compassion. Verse 34 says that he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We start to see Jesus who actually wants to bring righteousness and wants to bring um, strength to these people and wants to display the power of God so that they can come to recognize who he is, and the validity of the message he's been preaching to them. When we see this miracle kind of unfold, it also becomes a test for his closest inner circle, right? Mm -hmm. With the 12, because they're not sure how this crowd could be fed. And yet five loaves and two fish become an abundance because of the blessings and the kindness of God here. Yeah, and, and, and I even think the leftovers were supposed to be a lesson for them about just, it's not just that God can do a lot with a little, but God can do far more than you can possibly imagine and even have left over. Again, as, as, as opposed to the banquet that Herod would have had with his people. Dave, what stands out to you in this, in this text here? Well, it's, a, it's obviously a sign, and there are things that the disciples were supposed to learn from it. We haven't quite got there, but verse 52 suggests that they should have understood something about the loaves that they're not understanding right now. And I think it has something to do with recognizing Jesus's power, recognizing, you know, Jesus perhaps is the, the new Moses. Some have suggested there are things that they're not seeing in this sign that he intends to take from them. We need so, to think about that as we keep reading. No, that's awesome. So again, so he's, he, after this scene is done, he's kind of with the disciples and immediately he gets into the boat. He's just trying, he's been with 5,000 people. I mean, you've been with a lot of people. You've, you've had days where you're just you're done. Right. He sends them away in the boat. Yeah. And, and, and he, wants, he wants to go pray. He wants a little bit of time to process the death of John the Baptist. He wants a little bit of time to lean back on the Father. And I think it's such a good lesson for us to make sure we are not getting, quote unquote, so busy, we don't have time to pray. And 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 even in those moments where he's trying to have a little bit of time for himself, we, you mentioned earlier the compassion of Jesus. It doesn't specifically say it, but in verse 48, he sees them straining at the oars. He sees them struggling. And so I'm assuming out of compassion, he walks to them. 
to go help them. But what's interesting about the fact that he goes to them to help them? Right. It's another miracle here in the middle of the night. We've seen Jesus calm a storm before, but now Jesus is not just in the boat with the disciples. Jesus is aware of their struggle and he's moving in their direction. And some people might say, oh, well, Jesus is just close to the shoreline or Jesus is just standing on a sandbar. Well, that's not what Mark says. He says the boat was in the middle of the sea. And you can look up real quick on Wikipedia. The Sea of Galilee is 141 feet deep. This is not Jesus with an optical illusion. Mm -hmm. This is Jesus verifying that he is the Son of God, that he is the one that controls even nature itself. Yeah. And so how do the disciples start to respond to seeing Jesus out there, Dave? Well, they were terrified at first. I, I kind of wonder how I would have responded, mm-hmm. but uh, but it, his response is so awesome. Take heart. I think some translations might be courage. I think that's the word. Take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. Mm-hmm. Right? There's this idea of, I, I, I think, you know, I think about Herod and the guilty conscience and fear and whatever he's plagued with. Yeah, in, in, I look here and I see that Jesus' power and authority, which people have questioned, tried to understand, it's it's meant for good. It's meant for the blessing of those that really are seeking after him. Mm-hmm. And so to hear Jesus say, so take courage is an encouraging thing to those who are seeking after him. And going into chapter 7, you'll find some people who aren't really seeking after him. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, they can't really knock him down because of the signs. I mean, people ate bread. That would have been, it would have been hard to deny that. And so what they do is they, they, you know, observe, they observe that some of Jesus' disciples, while well, they're not partaking in some of their traditions, and they go to Jesus and they ask, you know, well, well, why don't your disciples live according to the traditions of the elders instead of eating with bread ceremonially uh, unclean hands? Philip, what stands out to you about Jesus' response to their question here? Yeah, the Pharisees are being really cautious, and I think we need to know where these traditions come from, right? They're washing their hands or they're washing their serving dishes because they want to be sure that there's no trace of anything that the law of Moses would have verified as being ceremonially unclean because they don't want to do anything that might bring that, like that they would ingest that and then become ceremonially unclean. And Jesus just comes back to them and says, guys, you've taken these traditions too far. Mm -hmm. You've taken these traditions and maybe what started with some healthy caution, you've taken it so far that now your heart isn't even connected to God. You're teaching these things as if they are doctrine. You're teaching these made-up ideas of men in a way that you care more about those being obeyed than the actual commands of God being obeyed. And so he brings up a good example of this, that everybody knows you're supposed to honor your father and mother. It was one of the Ten Commandments, and yet they've created a loophole. They've created a workaround where they can put their traditions ahead of God's commands. He even says you're invalidating the Word of God by your tradition. Mm -hmm. Dave, when you think about traditions, how can they be a good thing but also a dangerous thing? Uh, There there can be nothing in and of itself wrong with a tradition that Mm -hmm. the challenge that Jesus is putting in front of them is you've taken your tradition and you've elevated it to the status of a commandment of God. And it's interesting, as they're struggling with his identity, their question really is, why aren't you like us? And, and he's like, why aren't you listening to God? Mm. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so with that, again, you, you see, to, to your point, Dave, they, they end up abandoning God's word. Philip, mentioned, you mentioned they invalidate God's word. They nullify God's word. And any time we find ourselves doing 
any of that with God's word to do anything else. We're giving more value to traditions. And, and what ends up happening is you end up doing these things in vain. You end up worshiping God in vain. And, and Jesus actually calls them hypocrites. You're an actor. You're playing a part because you want to give off this, this idea that you're religious. You want to give off this idea that you're spiritual. That's not really the case. You know, and if Jesus stopped there, if he was just somebody that came as a critic to point out where other people are falling short, that would be useful, but it might not capture our hearts the way he really is. Because not only is he able to point out the problem with their thinking, he's then able to elevate everybody's thinking. He's able to take us all the way back to the heart. He calls out to the crowds, listen to me, all of you. There's nothing outside the man that can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. And then separately with his disciples, privately inside the house, he wants to drive this point really home to them. He says in verse 19 of chapter 7, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Why do we need to focus like Jesus does here on what is coming out of our heart? Because that's what actually shows where your heart is, and that's what that's where the real defilement comes from. He says, from the heart is what comes out, and then he gives this list of sins. And let me just say, I, I think it's important to note, by the way, this takes time to fully grasp, that if someone has been holding on to traditions, you don't just cut them off the next day. You know, so it, the text says, thus he declared all foods unclean. Well, this is in Mark 7. We know that later on in the in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter still doesn't get it. Right. And he's still unwilling to do un, you know, to eat unclean foods. And so I think it's even important for us to, to know like God wants a change of heart. There are some things that are the matter matters of hearts that are far more important, infinitely more important than traditions. But as we maybe think about our own traditions or we see people who have struggled with traditions and struggled with with, with giving too much weight to traditions. To understand that maybe sometimes that, that takes a little bit of time to cut off and, and to remove from our lives. And especially here, he's calling out some of the specific things that do make us unclean in our heart. And we need to acknowledge that, that although our world kind of turns a blind eye to fornication or theft, maybe turns a blind eye to covetousness or adultery or envy, Jesus doesn't. Jesus sees those things in our heart, and he came so that we could be cleansed from those things, that we know we have a need to be purified from the inside out. So so I, I love what happens, right? Because they're doing this whole thing about uh, cleanliness and, and whether they should be in a place that's clean or unclean. And then he gets up and he goes to the region of Tyre, which would not have been, in the, in right. the eyes of many Jews, a very clean place. And he has this interaction with this woman. Dave, what stands out to you about that section there of his interaction with this, this woman? What is it about her that's distinct? What is it about what she says that's interesting that, or is anything that we should notice? Well, it starts by this idea that he didn't want anybody to know he was there. And here she is, maybe someone unexpected, who's looking for a blessing from him. And when she asked for that, cast the demon out of her daughter, verse 26, his response is, is striking to mm -hmm. anybody who reads. Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dog. That seems a little rude. What's that about? I, I, certainly we know Jesus is not doing something wicked here. Mm -hmm. I think the best explanation I've heard is it's a test. You know, and, and as he throws these words out here, how does she respond to it? She sort of accepts how he's characterized this thing. Like, she, she has no reason to expect a blessing mm -hmm. right now, but yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
And I think it's Matthew that reports, great is your faith, was Jesus's response. Yeah. That, that, her persistence, her she she knew where she could find a, a, a divine blessing, and she was going to keep at it. Yeah, this was a act of faith and a decision of faith on her part that understands Jesus' timing. She's not particularly surprised that Jewish people are going to be separated from Gentile people, but she knows what he can do. And because of her humility here, Jesus is glad to grant her request. She's passed the test with flying colors. Yeah, so the Pharisees, they come and they're questioning and they're trying to find ways to cut Jesus down. You just see their pride and their arrogance. And then you see this woman's response as she comes, or really her question and then her response as she comes to Jesus. Maybe the test is for her. I wonder if the test is also for the disciples. Like, you may think that you're sitting at the table, you're big and you're bad. We'll see a little in a few chapters, James and John will ask to be at the right and left hand. I mean, and, and the reality is, is that in, in, in the sight of God, we're all like, we, we don't, we, we're not sitting. God allows us to sit at the table. We're all just begging for crumbs. And like this woman, again, she, even she understands that the crumbs would be enough. You know, you think about, again, in the, the chapter before, they have five pieces of bread and two fish, and they're like, but what can we do with this for so many people? That's crumbs, Jesus. How is that? How, how can we do anything with this crumbs? But it's Jesus we're talking about. And even the crumbs that he would offer, and he offers us far more than crumbs, but even the crumbs that he could potentially offer us would be far greater and far more beneficial for us than anything else in this world. Yeah, that is an amazing connection there between the abundance, feeding the 5,000, and the people struggling with their faith, and now this Gentile woman just accepting even the crumbs. It's like the people that would want to touch the hem of the garment. They just Mm -hmm. knew that he was special. He was more than just a prophet. He was more than just a wise teacher. He's truly from God. And I think as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that a little bit of groundwork has laid for people to start appreciating that. Right, Bill? Yeah, well, and I'm actually thinking about something you mentioned to me before, at uh, the beginning part of chapter six, just the comparison between how people at home see Jesus and how this Gentile lady sees Jesus and, and just how all of that works together. Yeah, back in Nazareth, they were so familiar with him that they started to take it for granted, that closeness to him, knowing his brothers, knowing his sisters, knowing his kind of family trade. They just don't treat him as special. And I think we now see this Gentile woman, not just for herself, but for her daughter, Mm -hmm. right? Not just for herself, but for her family. She opens her eyes to see who Jesus really is and treats him special. We need to make sure we don't let that closeness to Christ blind us to the things he wants us to see. That's right. And so then as the chapter ends, he goes back to the capitalist, which is where he was in chapter five, where he heals the demon-possessed man, where they ask him to leave. And now they're bringing people to him. And there's a very clear difference in, in, in the response of the people. Before they had asked him to leave, here they're astonished again, but they're saying he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And I just... I wonder if, if, if the, the previously demon-possessed man played a role in the people's willingness to listen to Jesus and the people's willingness to bring their own sick and their own death to Jesus. And, and, and maybe for us thinking in our own lives, just the role that we can play in someone's life, maybe someone who isn't ready or isn't willing to, to accept Jesus or think about Jesus in their own personal life, but to see how God has changed us, for us to talk about how God, the goodness of God, the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light, and that that might open up a doorway for people to come to God as well. It really can. And what we've seen throughout chapter six and chapter seven is this emphasis on people that will come to him with faith. Because Jesus takes multiple steps through these chapters to minimize his popularity 
and to maximize the faith of others. He's not so interested in having large crowds. In fact, we see him trying to get out into the wilderness, trying to go into the home privately, but he's very interested in people going deeper in their faith. And that's really the opposite of what we see in so much of the religious culture today. We see people that are obsessed with their own popularity, their own praise, their own social media following, and they don't care too much about how deep or how shallow the faith of those followers is. And we cannot fall into that trap. That's right. Jesus is less concerned about popularity and more concerned about what's in the heart and what is genuinely a growing faith. So guys, as we think about Jesus in big in a big picture today, I think we see him as this great healer with so many different people showing their compassion. We see him as this great shepherd that cares for the sheep. We see him as this great teacher that gets back to the heart of the matter. And ultimately, we see him as this great judge looking for humble faith among others. How is that going to help us with our friends, with our community, with our coworkers? What should we think about Jesus that we can bring out to those people in our lives? Well, I think in part, uh, what we're supposed to see is he, I mean, he sent the 12 out to go and to preach that people should repent. And I think sometimes we can feel a bit inadequate in doing that. We can feel like all we have are is 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 crumbs. We feel like I don't have anything. What you know? What do I have to bring? And just remember that even even though I am crumbs, if I am bringing the word of God to people, God can do a lot with the little that I have. Whatever little talent I feel like I have, whatever little ability I feel like I have, God can do great things through that because it's the Lord working in us. Dave, what stands out to you here in these two chapters? Well, I, I think getting back to Philip's question, I think we need to have faith. We need to be mm. strong and of good courage. I mean, when the, the disciples were told to take that same message out two by two, they were told not to take these. Have faith. Go out. Share that message that God has given you to share. Uh, that's what John did. You know, and, and, and I, I think we've got we've to be the same. That's wonderful. Well, thank you today for listening along with us as we've discussed Mark chapter 6 and Mark chapter 7. If you'd like to see the full reading list, it's available online at embryhills.com slash podcast. Please join us next week as we get into chapter 8 and chapter 9.